You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus, who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and playing D&D in my basement for the rest of our lives. This is Season 5, Episode 9, Dungeons and Disciples. I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Adam. Hey, you and I are both wearing our priest clothes as we record today. Oh, yeah, because we're in our offices. <laughs> we are in our offices. Amazing. Uh, and today we are talking about Dungeons & Dragons. This is the second time we've uh, mm-hmm. done a deep dive on D&D, and uh, we'll see what happens. Today we are going to be talking about all of the ways that playing Dungeons & Dragons shapes us as disciples of Jesus. Uh, you want to give us our scripture quotation today, Carrie? Sure. Our scripture quotation from today is from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And our quotation from Nerd Canon comes from an interview with Matthew Mercer, the dungeon master of the uh, probably arguably most famous actual play, uh, Dungeon and Dungeons and Dragons game online critical role. Uh, Matthew mm-hmm. Mercer says, "Role playing games have been a huge part of my life and a huge part of my training as a performer, learning social skills, meeting friends, and being a generally competent person. So I owe a lot to role playing games." So as as Adam mentioned, we did do another episode on Dungeons and Dragons, actually with a guest star who is none other than my delightful husband, Nick. And that was season three, episode eight. We talked mostly about what we are calling divine creativity, how D&D shapes, enhances the creativity that God gave us as sparks of divinity ourselves as people made in the image of God, and then how we exercise that in the world. But there's a lot more to it than just creativity, although that is probably a foundational part. And we wanted to keep talking, particularly from our perspectives as me as a player character and Adam as a forever DM, although occasionally getting to play as a player character, on what other parts of D&D, how we're shaped by these other aspects of Dungeons and Dragons. And I've done a lot of thinking about this because I have had to sell playing Dungeons and Dragons to parents of youth at my church as a way of forming them as disciples. And I've been amazed at the way that some of the middle schoolers I've played with have uh, really grown into their characters while they're playing and, and are really being serious and intentional about the decisions they're making and the interactions they have within the game. And that particular game that I run with the middle schoolers and a few high schoolers from my church, uh, I set it up specifically so that the scenarios that we're in are really about our growth as people. So it's not just, you know, a dungeon delve. Uh, So we started that game um, in the middle of the pandemic and the first adventure they had uh, was about, um, uh, was about curing a fantasy illness because I wanted them to have some agency around this huge world event that they couldn't affect really all that much on their own. But in this game, they could grapple with it. 
Um, right. and in the next, in the next element, they continued the storyline and they ended up after a lot of stuff face to face with a dragon. And instead of fighting the dragon, they, um, they tricked it. <laughs> and so they ended up going on a path of nonviolence with this dragon when they could have easily just, you know, rolled initiative and fought the dragon. They went a whole nother way. And it was really amazing to see them over the course of a couple of sessions decide not to fight, but mm -hmm. to decide another mm -hmm. way. So watching these kids uh, grapple with a lot mm -hmm. of this stuff within our game um, reminds me of all of the ways that all of the reasons why I play Dungeons and Dragons beyond just this is a lot of fun and I like to hang out mm -hmm. with my friends. Mm -hmm. There's I, I have grown so much in the last, let's see, seven years since I started mm -hmm. playing D&D. &D. Uh, and now I wish, of course, that I had started playing D not seven years ago, but, you know, when I was seven. Well, and what I like about how you phrase that is you are doing this as both a social opportunity fellowship, what we call in the church, which is just Christians hanging out together and building up that, you know, beloved community that we spoke about last episode. But you're also tailoring it, tailoring the adventures to this group of people where they are in their life and where they are, as you said, in the world and what kind of adventures might be helpful for them. It shows a great deal of empathy on your part to understand how they might be able to be formed through this game. Part of what's important about formation is having it be a lifelong endeavor, not just we go to Sunday school, then we graduate and that's it. That's all we are. We are perfectly formed as disciples <laughs> and we're done. But engaging that process throughout your life and part of a good formation leader is knowing where people need to grow and how to invite them into that. And that's precisely what you're doing with this group of middle schoolers. You're practicing empathy and understanding. When you started playing D&D, &D, Carrie, what was the first kind of aha moment you had about realizing that D&D &D was going to uh, support your life as a disciple of Jesus? Hmm. It may have been when I made my second character. Part of what's been interesting is being a perpetual player character. I have DM'd a one-shot duet with my husband, but that I didn't particularly love. <laughs> uh, I might try it again one day, but for now I'm, I'm enjoying playing from the other side of the screen. Um, and my first character, Emmerich the Bard, who you may have read about in some of Adam's novels or heard me talk about, um, was pretty much just like a fantasy version of me, but a male dwarf instead. There wasn't a lot of his personality and how he spoke was very similar to me. When I rolled up my grave domain cleric, half-orc cleric Kaori, who was raised by halflings, I had a lot of fun imagining how she was slightly different than me. And that, I think on the player character creation side, encourage some introspection and self-knowledge and understanding um, that is helpful and ongoing, but also in engaging with those characters, I practice the same kind of empathy that you do with your middle schoolers. I place myself in the shoes of another person, essentially. And while all my characters are really just fragments of myself that are dramatized and expanded or undiscovered parts of myself that I discover through playing them, um, you do have to get into the shoes of another mind and figure out how they would respond. So there's a little bit of um, 
emulating something else beyond yourself. I feel like that's a good practice for if we are intending to be Christ-like, emulating Jesus and some of the values he lived by, we can practice that getting out of our own heads through D&D. And so what about Kaori was different for you as a person? She's a lot angrier than I am, but as someone who has struggled to embrace my anger, um, letting Kaori really rip when it came down to it, um, was part, it was part of the enjoyment of her. She's also, um, as a grave domain cleric who was raised by halflings, her God is, and in our games, we do use the sort of traditional D and D pantheons. She was a cleric of the halfling God Yandala, and she was a very vocal evangelist, which I thought was fun because I'm a little bit more shy about my beliefs, but she was out there maybe problematically declaring heresies and trying to convince people that following Yandala was the right way to be. And she actually ended up converting one of our other characters who was a halfling who was distanced from his community. And at the end of this little campaign we did, he ended up going back and staying with her parents for a while in the halfling community. Hmm. So she, <laughs> Interesting. she converted him. Interesting. Yeah. So, so she was a little more vocal than you and embraced anger in a way that you as a human were Mm -hmm. not allowed to Mm -hmm. growing up, right? You were, you were socialized to feel different feelings or to replace the feeling of anger with something else. When you're talking about empathy, we have it from a character standpoint, but we also have it from the standpoint of players around the table. And one of the things that D&D can teach us in a safe space is how to read the cues of other people at the table. Oh, completely. Uh, you know, there are there are games that that have certain um, guidelines where they might have uh, something that you can touch on the table if you think that if the story is going in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable or unsafe. Um, and... And if you don't have something like that, me as the dungeon master, one of my goals and roles is to uh, continue to check in with the players and make sure that the story we're telling is one that A, they want to tell, but B, they feel comfortable telling. And so some of that is setting ground rules before you begin the game around, you know, violence or intimacy Oh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But in the flow of the game, you know, there, there could be a time or a moment where something just feels a little off and being kind of dialed in empathetically to the other players can help us to recognize when that's happening and having that, um, having that empathic sense developed through a game like D and D can, can help us again, as disciples of, of Jesus to, um, see from another person's perspective and to feel from another person's perspective. And I think that's important because sometimes in church life and community, we get moved to a place that we didn't expect in worship. And sometimes checking, being able to read the room um, as a pastor, as a leader, and then also just as a person sitting in the pews can be really helpful to to then check in with people like this may have resonated with someone in a way that they might not have been expecting or anticipating and keeping track that that they're okay that it's okay to to say you know i i realized that this maybe re- brought something up in you how are you doing from the professional dnd side i remember in season 2 of critical role there was a very moving episode where 
one of the characters re, you know, talk to their dad from whom they'd been estranged. And I don't want to give too many spoilers, but basically this had to be a carefully choreographed convert or carefully set up conversation between player and DM who happen in real life to be married to one another and checking it, checking in beforehand that that's okay, that they want to go there, playing the scene, improvising the scene so beautifully and so touchingly and so painfully. And then afterwards, checking in with each other of like that raised a lot of stuff in us as a couple let's let's be careful and i feel like all of that reading reading the table reading the room and understanding how different emotions and themes and stories might be moving a person uh, can be hugely helpful yeah you're you're reminding me of something that happened as we're recording this in one of my D and D games last night, um, the party is in the plane of Valakun, which is the angelic plane of the world that I've created. Um, and they have done all their, their business there. And they decided to go visit this being called the soul of light, which is this gravitational center on this broken plane where all of the islands sort of swirl around this center. Whoa. It's, it's, it's interesting. Anyway, they, they the went and they talked to this keeps having amazing uh, adventures. Oh, goodness gracious. And we're anyway, the, solving the, crimes. the creature, <laughs> you guys are only level four or five, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so the the creature at the center of this world um, created this this uh, gravitational pull uh, after the plane got broken because of something um, that they were had a hand in in, in making happen, uh, and it was really bad. Uh, and so they were grieve they've been grieving for centuries, um, and their tears fill this basin, and their tears have this weight. And the tears are the gravity that are filling this basin. And that whole storyline oh. and that whole kind of backstory came from a poem that I saw on Facebook like two weeks mm. ago. Mm -hmm. And the poem from an empathic state state uh, really sp spoke to me. Uh, so I'm just going to read you the poem. Read, read our it. listener the poem. Uh, it's by a person named Rosemary Watola Traumer. And it's called Watching My Friend Pretend Her Heart Isn't Breaking. So just listen to this poem. It's just incredible. Oh. On Earth, just a teaspoon of neutron star would weigh six billion tons. Six billion tons equals the collective weight of every animal on Earth, including the insects, times three. Six billion tons sounds impossible until I consider how it is to swallow grief. Just a teaspoon and one might as well have consumed a neutron star. How dense it is how it carries inside it the memory of collapse, how difficult it is to move then, how impossible to believe that anything could lift that weight. There are many reasons to treat each other with great tenderness. One is the sheer miracle that we are here together on a planet surrounded by dying stars. One is that we cannot see what anyone else has swallowed. So that poem really, really spoke to me, and it and it mm -hmm. and it launched it launched me into this creation of this plane, and how this plane you know forms around this grieving, uh, uh, what's called an Empyrean in in D and D, but a big angelic mm -hmm. creature mm -hmm. that's not a god, because I don't have gods in my world. Um, yes, but that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> but but it but from an empathic standpoint, I I was trying to get into the space of this character that had kind of inadvertently caused a genocide. 
mm-hmm. um, what, when the, this creature thought that they were doing the right thing. And then mm-hmm. something horrible happened instead. And and to be able to get into the headspace of a being like that and to speak from that creature's um, persona when inter when interacting with the characters is a real gift that I mm-hmm. that I get to have as a DM. Um so uh, anyway, I thought that poem and was phenomenal. <laughs> absolutely. And and the creativity, we've talked about that before, but also the ability to incorporate things from all sources as part of your storytelling i think is another skill that shapes that we are shaped by dnd um part of the christian journey and sharing our own stories and the story of jesus is we have to be creative about it we have to be able to tell the story in a way that's compelling that's true that's um authentic to who we are and what we are and that involves taking all of us the things we've read the things we've wondered about the places we've been and making it into a story that is compelling and shareable. And the storytelling aspect of D&D, which of course is the heart of the whole venture, um, is bar none the, the the place where Dungeons & Dragons connects so closely with Christianity, I think. Um, because we are what a lot of people have called a storied people. You know, we we grow from the stories that we read in the Bible and the people who wrote those stories down were formed by those stories told orally for generations. And um, one of my favorite lines of scripture is the very last lines of the gospel, according to John, where the Mm. writer of John sort of randomly goes into the first person for the last line (laughs) of the gospel and says something to the effect of, um, you know, these stories are written down so that you may believe in Jesus. Um, but they're not all the stories of Jesus. I suppose that if I tried to write down all the stories of Jesus, the world could not contain the books that would be written. A million uh, alien gospels. Right, right. See, season four, episode something. Uh, oh, hey, well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've always thought of, you know, you you and me and, and everyone being those books that couldn't be written. That, that we haven't written down yet, that that we're continuing to share this story in in new ways, in old ways. And um, as we tell the story, we are also living the story that the story of the gospel, the gospel might have by in the canon of, of scripture might be closed, but the story of God continues to be told. And when we tell stories in Dungeons and Dragons, we're telling it in a very particular way. I, as the DM am not an adversary of the players, right? We are telling this story together collaboratively. And I can't think of a better analog for how we exist in community as a church than collaborative storytelling. Are you saying that you as a DM are like God inviting the player characters, i.e. us, to into a collaborative story with various scenarios that are not predestined or predetermined, but okay, my metaphor is running out. <laughs> I, Why don't I you will tell let, me what you mean I'll by let that? You, I'll <laughs> let you say that so that I'm not comparing myself to God. <laughs> but, you know, in a way, so the dungeon master and the players have a really interesting relationship in which uh, myself as the DM, I play literally the whole world besides 
mm-hmm. what is inside the player character's mind and what they do with their body. I am the sky and the ground and the and all of the people that they interact with and the moss that they talk to. Oh boy, do they talk in the truffle <laughs> and the tr- mushrooms? And the truffle. So we don't have a, a, a we don't have a <laughs> druid in the uh, current game that Carrie plays in. So there's less talking to animals in this game. <sighs> uh, it's also set in a city, so it's a little harder to find you know wildlife to talk I to. Find but... some rats, I guess. <laughs> I guess my lizard would probably just eat them anyway. Yeah, probably. I love, yes, speaking to all parts of the creation using spells like speak with animals <laughs> right um so as the dungeon master i fill this whole world with with what it is but i don't necessarily know what is there in the world until a player says hey i look over there mm. what's over there and then in my mind i have to create what's over there um i don't have it all completely designed it's not like the whole world is formed right and then you all just sort of drop into it as you walk the world is created in front of you. Um, and I do a lot of improvising because I, I mean, I have notes and I, I, mm-hmm, I do all mm-hmm. kinds of world building, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I'm prepared, but not, not to that degree. Well, and there's another skill you just named improvisation and flexibility, the flexibility of the DM, as you mentioned. And then I guess for me as a player, practicing the empathy of being in another person's shoes, but also none of it's scripted you might have parts of your backstory you're thinking up and ahead of time, but in the moment, something might come to you. And there's a little bit of like a almost Quaker discernment of speaking what the spirit is moving in you in the moment of that improvisation and having the ability to, to say, though, this is important right now. I'm going to voice this. And just the act of improvising with another group of friends in this collaborative story endeavor um, is, is another skill that I think, I was never taught, um, and I know there's other places to learn it, but I have found it incredibly helpful because sometimes I have to think on my feet, especially as a priest of the church, when people are asking me tough questions or they find out what I do for a living and they want to talk my ear off about their (laughs) experiences uh, or lack thereof with church. And part of practicing improv is thinking on your feet and um, being able to respond in the moment. All of that is helpful for people who are leading communities and people who engage in those communities. The collaborative nature that you're talking about is so intensely important to this whole endeavor of Dungeons and Dragons and also just our lives of faith in in living in community uh, because the collaborative muscles that we have need to be developed. I don't think, at least personally, I am not, uh, I've, I have had to develop my collaborative sense and nothing has developed that sense more than Dungeons and Dragons. Um, because as the dungeon master, I could set you all on some train tracks and then just run you through a story. But that's not very fun for the players. It's much more fun to kind of have a general idea of what a story might look like and then have the players live in that and live in that story, live whatever, wherever they might go. Well, we're going to do that. So in the game that we're playing right now, um, I might not have been quite ready for you all to go to the place that you're in now. 
<laughs> Whoops. Right. Me no, neither, no, it's not a, a problem. <laughs> not, a, not a problem that you're there. But that's, a, you know, responding with that flexibility into that collaborative space is is really important. Again, being a dungeon master is not an adversarial position because if I wanted to kill the party, guess what? Yeah, I could. So easy. Very, very easily. So that's not the point of my role as the dungeon master. (laughs) My point is to help you all tell a really interesting, compelling and fun story. And that story might actually dig up things in the players as you were saying with the with the example from Critical Role, we've had that happen in our games. And what you're doing as DM is you're building the community, you're creating a vessel, a container. That's part of what D and D is, and what we've spoken about. Why you know Adam has said that his kids aren't ready for D and D yet because right now they can do all that collaborative storytelling without the rules and numbers and math of D and D. It's when we get older and we forget how to play that we need to kind of trick ourselves into doing it. So part of what Adam and my husband and all other DMs do is they create this container, this space for us to then play around in and build up this community. And I think one of the greatest things um, about doing that collaborative storytelling, particularly as a person of faith, is sometimes things don't go your way. So I joked that my my character wasn't ready to go where we were going Uh we're infiltrating their old cult. So uh, they're a little, they're a little terrified. And that's part of how it goes. Sometimes it's one person's backstory being highlighted, and you might have an idea of what you wanted to do that that session. And in the moment you realize you can step back, you can let it be about them, you can let someone else's story lead. Uh, we joked that in our last campaign, all the stories were about Matt, one of You're our right, player right. characters. <laughs> all the arcs were about Matt, um, but it it worked great. And then it was interesting to see, you know, my character's backstory got to be delved into. And we were going back to his homeland, and he had some time in the spotlight. And this gently taking turns on who is leading or who the story is kind of focused around, um, again, is is practicing that compromise that you need in any community. When you have a well-functioning table of people who trust each other and like to be around each other, you are able to pass the baton back and forth so that the story does center around other people and you become a supporting character for a time. And then because there is because the community is equitable, that baton ends up getting passed to you as well at some point. And the story revolves around you at that time. So yeah, that, I think that's a really important skill to learn also in, in our in our lives of faith and in our walks as, as human beings is sometimes this isn't about me, you know, and I can um, and I can still support whoever it might be about. And you might even have more fun as a result. I'm always delighted when the story isn't about me, it's less pressure. And then I get to be that supporting role and I love it. And it's so much fun to see someone else's story unfolding in front of me. And again, I guess for you as a DM, part of your, and as a faith leader, part of your role is to kind of keep an eye on the balance of who has the attention, who who might have needs that aren't being met, what rules, regulations, suggestions, uh, nudges might be put in place to bring it back into balance. And I know that can be a huge challenge for a table if one player is constantly kind of taking over and maybe 
exerting more force in the story than anyone else and not fitting that dynamic. And it's not to say you want a homogenous table, but you want a harmonious table, I guess, to go back to our Becky Chambers discussion from last time. Right. About harmony versus melody. Right. All you want one where all the voices are balanced and supporting each other. And as a DM, um, it's you're essentially the front line keeping that balance. Although I would say a savvy player would also do their best and encourage others to do that as well. We're not powerless. Right. And one of the ways as a DM to do to do that, to achieve that kind of balance is to overlap the stories so that one a part of one person's story ends up affecting somebody else's story at the same time, which is thankfully how life works. Um, we can grow even when we're not the center of the story, or we can realize, wow, this is also about me. Even when I'm not the focus, I can still learn something. I can still participate. Um, I don't have to take over. Uh, and that's all about collaboration and that flexibility. Uh, and it's a skill uh, that we all need to learn, some of us more than others. And as the DM, one of my favorite things to do is to sit back and listen to the players talk to each other. Yeah. There's There's been a handful of sessions where I have said the least of all of the people in the room. I'm, I'm thinking back to our first game when the whole party is on the beach after slaying their first dragon when they're in the water plane. Oh, yeah. Right? And we had a whole session where it was like two hours of the players just talking to each other in mm -hmm. character. And it was awesome. And I just sat there mm -hmm. listening and taking notes and going, hmm, what am I going to do with all of these conversations? And and I like when players take agency in sharing the story as well. And that also makes me think of how some of the most, I don't know, wise Christians I know don't just leave everything up to the faith leader of their community, to the priest. Um, we had a sometimes with my vestry, I'll practice um, what are you hearing and how are you as a leader responding? You know, you overhear some negative gossip. Um, did, do you just pass it on and say, oh, so-and-so was saying this, you know, pass it on to your priest, make it their problem? Or do you have some agency in that moment and become a part of the conversation in a constructive way? And I think that, again, I, I'm a kind of player who likes to keep an eye. Part of it's because I'm married to one of my DMs, um, the one that isn't Adam, the one that is Nick. And <laughs> we talk about the game afterwards and he's like, yeah, I'd really like to do this thing, but I don't know how to do it. And I'll, I'll, as a player, kind of take a little bit of a leadership role in inviting more player conversations or more backstory delving, um, because we all, we all have a role to play. We can all be leaders. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I, I love it when a player takes takes charge of the narrative and says, this is, this is what I really think my character should, is, is going to do right now. And Hey, even if it's a bad idea, yeah, if they're living never. into their character, then that's really, then, you know, some of the best storylines happen because somebody made a bad decision and we live with the consequences of that bad decision until we figure out how to overcome it. Let's, fin let's finish up. I, we, we talked about empathy and collaboration and improvisation and storytelling. I'd love to hear a couple more stories about your characters. Uh, maybe, maybe as we think about um, these last couple of things on our list. Like I said, I'm learning that each of my characters is either a part of me or uh, not a part of me. Either way, I am storytelling a whole different persona and I've had a lot of characters now. I think um, I've created 
seven, eight, if you include my weird one-shot sock puppet bard who only spoke through his sock puppets. Um, which was a terrible session. Just kidding. It was lovely. <laughs> um, my voice did hurt afterwards. And what I've realized in creating all these different characters is that I love all of them, which I guess means I love all parts of myself. Um, I have such tenderness in my heart for the characters I've created to the point where I'm I'm getting a, a little mini printed for almost every single character I make because they're a part of me and I like to remember them. And some of them have things in common. A lot of them have kind of like a, you know, comfortable but slightly lonely childhood. That was Emmerich's story. That was Kaori's story. Um, some of them are a little bit more extreme than that. Like Sycorax, my lizard folk was basically on a, you know, live or die on the edge of the swamp existence. Um, and a lot of them are just struggling to become who they're meant to be. And that's, that's something that I do every day and practicing all of that, discovering parts of myself or exploring parts of my past at the table with my friends is very vulnerable. And I like that I'm practicing that in a place that's safe, a place that I know people respect me and that I can, I can have fun and be goofy, but also be very serious and not feel foolish for being a grown woman who is playing pretend with a bunch of little toys. Um, and that just makes for an experience that strengthens friendships unlike anything else I've experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We we've joked before that our, uh, D and D game is actually a text chain that sometimes plays D and D. Um, and, but it has grown into a supportive community outside of the game like we are friends with each other outside of the game and we support one another and we really really love each other so you've talked about emmerich and kaori and sycorax any last little thoughts you have about some of your other your other folks here oh man i mean they're all great you can i once made a powerpoint presentation for my peer group we had a day off we had a week off from check-ins and we did powerpoint parties and shared things that we're passionate about like brazilian jiu-jitsu or stand-up comedy and mine was what my D, D characters are about but now it would be a very <laughs> long powerpoint now um, i'm loving my newest character is dewdrop model gill who is a little bit ripped off of becky chambers monk and robot series but not really and he ties into the backstory of my uh her grace agneska amelia marguerite von zoldeweg hegyag duchess of the green glass mountains my necromancer wizard from another campaign there's they're like tied together and there's this epic <laughs> gnomish civil war that no one besides me really cares about i could talk about them all day i'm trying to think of um if there's a, an npc or two that i mm. that i created that i just really loved to play Hala Hyron, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Hala Hyron, the uh, ancient elf archmage of the Sularan League, was quite <laughs> fun because she was just, you know, an old lady who loved everybody and would tell them exactly what she thought. And I've known a lot of elders from church that are like that. And mm -hmm. they they just hold a special place in my heart because of how wonderful and, and beautiful um, they were. Uh, I say were because most of them have have died since. Um, so, yeah, Hala Hyron, definitely. I'm actually enjoying I, this might be weird, uh, but I'm enjoying playing the cult leader. 
uh of your cults um i how well you are i have discovered i have discovered that i can create a cult very easily (laughs) what was it you were waiting for for your daughter to come out of ballet practice and you wrote like Uh, no it was was, uh, yeah on uh, while waiting in the line for school pickup Mm. i wrote the uh unveilings of pascath which is a 15 step kind of scientology style gnosticism you know of of unveiling for deeper and deeper truths and um and we're not really sure even where it all comes from so it'll be interesting to see but i've enjoyed playing that character um because you know going back to that vulnerability we were talking about before playing the character of horatio the cult leader i recognize in my own self the ability to manipulate Mm -hmm. you know and think okay obviously this character is a very manipulative character and i am able to be that character so reflecting back for myself you know how how am i this character in my real life like what ways do i embody this cult leader you know and and how do i combat that you know how do i how do i lean back into the you know that collaboration and and empathy and away from the from the manipulation. So even playing villains, actually, I'm especially playing villains, you know, helps me learn a lot about myself. And I've played a lot of villains in D&D, some of which were, you know, world ending demons. So they were a little bit easier to play because they're just so over the top. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Uh, but the ones that were more human <laughs> were really mm-hmm. interesting, really interesting to play. Um, so when we play D&D, we learn so much about ourselves and about each other and about the community that we're forming. So whether you're playing a wise, um, kindly, and also sassy archmage or a manipulative skis ball, all of those also are parts of your personality. And again, part of what's great about D&D is doing that introspection, learning what what parts of us are more Christ-like and what parts of us can we maybe teach and quiet down and shape into something that is more helpful for what we ultimately want to do, the story we really want to be telling, which is that of God alive and at work in the world. We are finishing the long way to a small angry planet on this episode. And here's a recap of the end of the story. In the aftermath of Lovey's cascade failure, grief-stricken Jenks flees in an escape pod, only to be hauled back in by Sissix and Kizzy. No one has come to the core to orient the newly booted up Lovelace until Pepper does. She understands Lovelace's predicament about staying aboard and being forever compared to the old Lovey. So Pepper offers her the body kit she was saving for Jenks, and Lovelace takes her up on it. By the way, this storyline leads right into Becky Chambers' next book, A Closed and Common Orbit. Meanwhile, Corbin takes matters into his own hands and administers the cyanat cure to Ohan while they lay dying. Corbin's reason being he doesn't want anyone else to die that day. Ashby is furious, but Corbin believes wholeheartedly that he did the right thing. Ashby is summoned to a committee hearing at the GC Parliament. On his way into the hearing, he is polite to an AI in Lovey's memory. The committee asks him some perfunctory questions, mostly about whether or not his crew provoked the Taremi. 
He denies this fiercely and then forcefully condemns any more talks with the Taremi until the GC can assure the safety of civilians. A few days later, the news feeds light up with the news that the GC parliament has broken off all contact with the Taremi for now. The final chapter comes, and Ashby gets a note from Pei saying that she is planning to stay aboard the Wayfarer for a good long time. Kizzy tells Jenks that he is more than a friend. He's the brother she always wanted. Ohan begins adjusting to life as a solitary and decides to stay aboard the Wayfarer. He even chooses to try real food instead of nutrient paste. Strangely, he and Corbin have begun spending time together. And the book ends with Rosemary and Sissix heading outside for a spacewalk, alone among the black of space, but never truly alone. Wow. I don't have anything to say except what an ending. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it, the way the, the book ends is really beautiful uh, because the book begins once you get past the little prologue with Ashby and you're with Rosemary. She's in that little closed mm-hmm. in pod, right? Sending it's being that. sent to the yep. ship. And now the she's tug. the pinhole tug. And now she's outside in a spacesuit, but but able to to, you know, move around in a in a new way. Um, mm. And still being, you know, supported by Sissix and the new uh, the new Tycho, um, Tycho the, the, the new AI. Um, by the way, we need to have a, a bit of a retcon from last episode. Oh, because, yes. Sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. That's right. I don't remember what I messed up, but I know I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Something about okay. the cure? Yeah. So we had intimated in the last episode that I, Dr. Chef. I intimated. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. Throw here. me under the bus. <laughs> Carrie said that <laughs> the doctor chef administered the cure to Ohan during the uh, during the punch when they're when they're trying to stabilize as they're after the Taremi attack. That's not actually what happened. Corbin administers the cure to Ohan in these chapters mm-hmm. without Ohan's permission. I think because maybe I was just assuming story-wise, I think that that would be a gentler kind of inevitability. Like in order to save the whole crew, Ohan has to be cured so they can wake up and blah, blah, blah. Or so he can wake up because yeah. he would wake up as a solitary. Uh, sing- solitary. Um, but no, instead, Corbin waits till everyone's out of danger and not for Ohan's old own good but for the fact that the crew will be sad, sacrifices Oan's bodily autonomy, which I think disturbs me on a level that's greater than I had even thought before. So my brain may have just been like, oh yeah, the cure gets administered during this crisis moment, which is still complicated. You you sort of reimagine the story so that the cure actually has, uh, so that violating Ohan's bodily autonomy from an ethical standpoint has an equally weighted good of saving the whole crew. Which I think given our recent conversations, particularly around Roe v. Wade and bodily autonomy of people who can have, who can become pregnant, isn't still is not ethically okay. Um, Though, you know, would, would you, if someone has a kidney that matches another person, you wouldn't make them give up their kidney or indeed all their physical organs if it saved the lives of 50 people. 
uh, we don't do that. So it still wouldn't have been okay, but it would be slightly more okay than what happens here. I don't know. I was very disturbed. That's what ethics is all about is which one of these choices is slightly more okay than the other choice. (laughs) Right. And, and in this, the way that it act, the story actually goes is that Corbin, just because the crew is grieving goes in and keeps Ohan from dying against Ohan's wishes. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's very unsatisfying that the way that, 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 that happens. Um, we of course, as readers would want Ohan to wake up enough to say, you know what, those people on that planet were right. Give me the cure. Uh, but they're never going to do that. And, and then once it is administered, there's this strange kind of new relationship form between the two characters and they don't really explore it. It's just sort of there. And I'm, I just don't know what to do with it. And that's part of what, I mean, I love Becky Chambers as a writer and she does these kind of vignette scenes, these, you know, this book doesn't really have a plot except it's the long way to a small angry planet. And I think I was very disappointed when I realized the next book was not Wayfarers part two. Uh, well, I mean, that's technically what the, it's called, but it's not about these characters. It's about Pepper and um, the the new Lovelace who becomes someone else in the process. And I, I really wanted part two of all of these stories. I wanted to see Sissix and Rosemary grapple with their conflicting cultural expectations around intimacy and romance. I wanted to see Ohan as a, as a solitaire, as a he not a they. I wanted to see Corbin grow into his new identity as a clone. And I wanted Ashby and Paige just to live happily ever after and nothing bad to happen to them ever, ever again. Um, but I don't get that. So maybe I'll just have to write some fan fiction. There you go. Or read some. I'm sure it exists. <laughs> I do love the way the book ends. And there are some some challenges with some of the storylines, the way they wrap up. Um also, on the other hand, the decision that Corbin makes in that moment is a very real response to grief. You know, that the, something bad has happened to the crew and I want the next bad thing not to happen. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm not going to respect the decision of somebody else. Um, so I can I can disagree with Corbin's actions while still empathizing with why he makes that choice. And I can also see that although it ends up being kind of a happy ending for them, Ohan wakes up and is starting to engage with the crew. Uh, His eyes aren't wet anymore. He seems a little bit more alert. Like he is better. He's not dying anymore. He's going to start regrowing his nerves and all of that with the help of Dr. Chef. Even though it's kind of a happy ending, it still doesn't mean that what Corbin did was okay. And that's so hard. Like, when he, you know, he thinks he knows what's best. And just because it ends up being kind of a good result does not mean that it was okay. And that, I don't think Becky Chambers is inviting us to say, you know, oh, yay, this is all good. I think there is a larger ethical quandary there that goes unexplored, um, but it's not swept under the rug, at least. I'm sure, I mean, Corbin himself mentions like, well, Ashby can't technically fire me because he'd lose Sissix in the process as his legal guardian. So he understands that there will be implications. Well, let's talk a little bit about about Lovelace and Pepper. Pepper comes to the AI core and this new version of Lovelace 
recognizes that something bad has happened, but doesn't quite know what. And Pepper realizes that nobody has come and done any kind of welcome or orientation onboarding, onboarding yeah. for the new AI because they're all grappling with the fact that the AI that that they had come to regard as a member of the crew and for Jenks, a romantic partner, um, was gone. Um, and this, and Pepper gives Lovelace a, an out, but at the same time, almost in a reflection or uh, sort of an upside down reflection of Corbin and Ohan is very clear to Lovelace that it is Lovelace's decision what you want to do. You can stay here and work it out and, and, in time, the crew will come to accept you in a different way that they than they accepted Lovey. Or if you want, you can come with me in the body kit and we'll make it work. But we're not going to shut you down, which which is Lovelace's first like, wait, you, I, I could get, you know, just completely shut down. No, Pepper says, this is your decision. You have the agency here. What do you want to do? And I love reading through the new Lovelace's eyes, optics, optical, whatever, <laughs> through, her, through her perspective, because she's so compassionate when she finds out when Pepper very, also very gently gives her the story. She says about Jenks, like, oh, oh, that poor man. She knows she can't, you know, she might be able to develop into an approximation sort of similar to Lovey, but given that Lovey's personality was shaped over 16 years of, of unique experiences, it's not going to happen. And the compassion she has of, I'm not going to be able to be lovey, but I can at least help this man heal by not being a constant reminder of what he's lost. She immediately has compassion and she realizes that they worked hard to save not her, but her predecessor, another AI, you know, to the point where Jenks's fingers are cracked and bleeding and she respects that and she's thankful for it. So Ashby goes to see the GC Parliament subcommittee on something or other, uh, and there they they have different ways of addressing him. A couple of them are a little bit more combative, and a few of them are a little bit more mm -hmm. understanding. But I really like the way that Ashby, as he's being dismissed, says, "Wait a second, I have something to say." He lays out for these politicians just what his crew experienced, uh, you know, with the at the border with the Taremi in, in the GC's desire for this precious resource, they have realigned their priorities so that to, in a way that makes people less safe. I mean, how often in real life does that happen where resources are seen as more important than people or civilians end up getting hurt because of a conflict over land or whatever, the way that that chapter ends you know, shows that Ashby's advocacy there actually moved the needle within the GC parliament because they did decide not to continue a relationship with the Taremi, despite all of the, the reason, the resource-based reasons why it would be a good idea. And, and the reason he does that, you know, he comes all that way is that is that the pushing of rosemary and and although something good does come of it she says earlier in in the previous chapter you're my captain you're our captain someone needs to speak for us so i don't care if what you say is of use to them or not but i need to know you said something so before the he's an advocate he's asked to be a, at the very least a witness to explain you know lovelace is dead Lo lovey is dead 
Um, we were almost killed. Ohan was pushed to the brink of collapse. All of us have been through this harrowing experience. She just needs him to say something as her leader. And I think I was reminded of the role of a priest and pastor and teacher in that moment of sometimes you don't think you have anything to offer. You don't think there's even words to say, but you have to say something and stand witness as part of something bigger. In this case, Ashby's the captain of this crew. He's kind of the figurehead, the the moral and heart center of the of the ship. And for us as faith leaders, we are in so many ways a physical representation of God on earth, whether we like it or not. We are reminders that there's this larger story at play. And so when we place ourselves, it might not be comfortable for us, but we are speaking and witnessing the good and the bad at all times. I think what Ashby realizes is it's not about him, just like as priests, it's not really about us. And that can be a huge comfort when difficult things come our way to speak into the moment. So as we as we finish up uh, this discussion, why don't we just say these characters are no longer part of the Wayfarer story as main characters. A few of them do crop up here and there throughout the rest of the books. Ashby is the uncle of one of the main characters in the book, uh, Record of a Spaceborn Few. Pei is a main character in the book, The Galaxy and the Ground Within. Uh, so there, the way the Wayfarer series works is that they're all stories told within this world that Becky Chambers built, uh, and they have some interstitial connections, but we don't just follow the same people book after book. And as Carrie said, that can be a little disappointing because we've really grown to love these characters. And at the same time, by telling other stories, we get to see other parts of this world and experience, experience it from the eyes of, of, of even, of an even greater diversity of perspectives. Although we're done with Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, we will wrap season five with a bonus fun episode as be has become our custom with a topic TBD. We've done some trivia in the past. We've done some would you rathers. Um, we're going to come up with something fun to end the season on a lighter note, a more uh, casual, fun conversation. Sorry, that got away from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bring us home, Carrie. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. Please give us a rating or review on your podcasting app of choice so others can discover us too. You can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians and on Twitter at nerdychristians where I occasionally tweet bad memes. You can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website adamthomas.net. Planar Steel, sequel to last year's Vampire Mist, is out now where you too can banish despair with a dragon. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Every day is a chance to be formed as followers of Jesus, following in his footsteps. May you be shaped in ways that strengthen your discipleship, practice your vulnerability, creativity, and empathy, find your collaborative voice, and throw yourself with the passion of a level one player character into the world God created and loves. Amen.